There you go. Uh, if you uh, thought before today that the Bible was uh, full of uh, inspirational stories with moral examples for all of us to imitate, then uh, you look, uh, need look no further than Genesis 38 to uh, see that that is indeed far from the case. But we're going through uh, the story of Joseph book by book, and uh, this is what is in God's Word. Uh, you, you would have thought that uh, the, the kind of uh, heroes of the Bible would be uh, super spiritual and squeaky clean, and yet um, what we have here is a story of a promiscuous patriarch and the story of a pious prostitute. Now, uh, you wouldn't have thought that the words promiscuous and patriarch would would go together, and yet that's exactly what we see here in the story, isn't it? And and you wouldn't have thought that the words pious and prostitute uh, exactly would go together, and yet that's exactly what we see here in the story. So what is it that God is trying to show us and to teach us through uh, including a story like this in the Bible. Well, I hope you will see this morning that the Bible is not uh, the story of here's how you can live a good life so that you can get God to bless you. That is not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is here's how the grace of God breaks through into people's lives who simply do not deserve it. That's the story of the Bible, and that's the story of Tamar and Judah and Perez. Friends, this is a story about people having a spiritual breakthrough in their lives. And so today we're going to look at the story. I hope you'll keep Genesis 3, uh, 38, uh, the Pew Bibles, in front of you under three headings. And the first heading we're going to look at is the breakthrough of Tamar, the pious prostitute. Then we're going to look at the breakthrough of Judah, the promiscuous patriarch. And finally, we're going to look at the breakthrough of blessing through the promised Perez. So that's where we're going this morning. And join with me. Let's look first at the breakthrough of Tamar, the pious prostitute. Uh, The background uh, to the story is that Judah has gone down uh, to Canaan and he's gotten married and he's had four kids. So the first one is called Ur, but it says in verse 7, have a look, he was very wicked in the sight of the Lord and so the Lord put him to death. He had another son called Onan, and basically the same thing happens with Onan. He was the same kind of guy. Verse 10, what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And so um, she's, uh, got, he's got one more son called Shelah, but Judah says to Tamar in verse 11, um, to Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. So the first thing you need to know about Tamar is that while all this happens, she's probably barely 15 years old when all this starts because um, girls got married soon after they reached puberty. And she is a, uh, she's a widow not once, but twice. In other words, in the eyes of the society and probably in her own eyes, Tamar was damaged goods. It's a tragedy because Tamar means palm tree. It's a picture of beauty. She's a beautiful teenage girl And yet she's been used and abused and now she is damaged goods. But there's still hope. There's one son left, the youngest, Sheila. He's too young to be married. And so Judah uh, sends Tamar home uh, to go home and wait, essentially saying, don't call us, we'll call you. 
The second thing to point out at this stage of the story is that as a widow, Tamar was most among the most economically and socially vulnerable people in the entire society. You see, a woman couldn't just go out and get a job like she might do today. There was no social security net or payouts for her. You know, there was actually a legal mechanism in those societies whereby women like Tamar, who were widows, could be taken care of. It was called the Levirate Marriage Law, which was simply that if a woman's husband were to die, then the responsibility for that woman would go back to that deceased man's father, her father-in-law. And if her father-in-law had any other sons, so her brothers-in-law, then she should be married off to them. And that was the way they looked after widows. And so that's what you see happening in the progression of the story. It was so that they would continue the family tree and it was so that they could be looked after And so outwardly, Judah's doing the right thing to Tamar. He's saying the right thing. But inwardly, we know he's doing something very different. Because in verse 11, it says he sent her off for he feared that Sheila too would die like his brothers. Now remember that the brothers died because of their wickedness in the sight of the Lord, didn't they? But what does Judah think? Why does Judah think they died? He thinks that this woman is cursed. So not only is he lying to Tamar about his intentions, but he's actually lying to himself. He's saying, the reason that my sons are dying is because this woman is wicked. This woman is cursed. But, But we know about Judah. We know that he was right in the thick of it in Genesis 34 when he and his brothers slaughtered the Shechemites, every last male. We know that it was his idea, Judah's idea, to sell his brother, his own flesh and blood for a bag of silver as a slave off to Egypt. We know what kind of guy Judah is and we know what kind of guy his sons are. Do you notice the kind of vulgar language about how uh, these women and Tamar are being treated? It says uh, Judah took a wife for Ur. So it sounds like he's less of a sensitive new age guy and more of a sexually neurotic aggressive guy. I mean, he took a wife like Eve saw the fruit and took it. Like the sons of God in Genesis 6 saw the daughters of men and took them. Or like Pharaoh saw Abraham's wife Sarai and took her. He's not a good guy and yet he has the temerity to blame all this on his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Ian Duguid says, Judah sold his own brother. He ditched his family. He plunged into a shotgun wedding. He ran with the wrong crowd and ignored his children. But he was sure that those two mounds of fresh dirt that used to be his sons were all Tamar's fault and not his own. So what's he doing here? Isn't he taking all of his guilt and all of his shame and placing it on Tamar so that he can think of Tamar as guilty and think of himself as innocent? Isn't that what he's doing? And so that's what he says. And in verse 11, it says, So Tamar, this beautiful teenage girl, maybe now 20, went to live in her father's house, banished. For the rest of her days. 
But of course, that's when things start to get interesting because in verse 14, she saw that Sheila was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. So she hatches this incredible plan. You know, in the first part, she's the one who's being acted on. It says Judah took her and Onan went into her and Judah sent her away. But now it's her the one doing the acting in verse 14. Have a look. She put off her widow's garments. She put on a veil. She wrapped herself up and sat down at the entrance. Bang, 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 bang. She's taking action. Of course, uh, her plan about Judah wouldn't have worked unless it was well known amongst the people that Judah had a voracious sexual appetite. She couldn't have known that her plan would have worked without knowing that he was that kind of guy. And sure enough, he sees her and she's got a veil and so he thinks that she's a prostitute. But he hasn't got any money to pay. But he's very eager in verse 18. What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her. I mean, this is the equivalent of your wallet and your Medicare card and your driver's license. So he was a keen bean. But what's she doing here? What is Tamar doing Well, I think the first thing that she's doing is that she is exposing the sexual double standard for men and for women in this story. Can't you see throughout the story that there's one sexual standard for men and an entirely different sexual standard for women? A Judah can sleep around with whoever he wants, whenever he wants, but Tamar has to go home to dad to be a widow at 20 years old for the rest of her life. Not only that, but Judah, of course, can get away with sleeping with a prostitute. But the second that he finds out that Tamar is pregnant, what does he want to do? He wants to burn her. Tamar is exposing the double standard in this society. But she's also seeking after justice. Because, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about caring for widows. The most vulnerable people in society. It has a lot to say about that. So in Psalm 146, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. He watches over aliens and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Judah, you're not sustaining the widow. In um, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah's indictment to God's people, the opening indictment in chapter 1 goes like this. He says to them, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the fatherless and plead the case of widows. He says, your rulers are companions of thieves. Look at how they took from Judah, Onan, taking from her sexually, but not being willing to give her a child because he didn't want that responsibility. They love bribes. They chase after wealth. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless and the widow's need they never hear. Therefore, I will turn my hand against you until Zion be redeemed with justice. You see, every society has 
things, has qualifications that are necessary for inclusion in that society. And so in our society, it's, it's quite helpful and necessary to have a thing like an education or a job. But in their society, the thing that you needed most of all to be included in society, most of all was to be married, especially if you were a woman. And if you didn't have that, you would be excluded from that society in all kinds of ways. So the point of the Isaiah passage and the injustice that we're seeing with Judah in our story today is that when God sees people in a society who have plenty of resources, but they are not actively sharing those resources and helping the people who don't have those resources, God doesn't call that stinginess. He calls it injustice. And that is what Judah is perpetrating against the poor widow, the beautiful girl, Tamar. Judah has the resources to help this poor widow. He's got something that only he can give her, his youngest son, Sheila, that only he can provide, which means he's under an obligation with all that privilege and with all those resources to help But when she finally realises that out of his selfishness, out of his callous heart, out of his blinkered vision and his need to blame somebody else for all of his own problems, that he's not going to help her. And not only that, but going to banish her away to her father's house for the rest of her life. She fights for justice. And that's the breakthrough of Tamar. Because justice is what she gets. Because what is it that Judah says about Tamar at the end of the story? Verse 26. She is more right than I. Most translations say she is more righteous than I. Uh, This word righteous is the Hebrew word tzedak and it was used in the Hebrew courts where after weighing the evidence, the judge would have to pronounce between the two people which one was tzedak, which one was righteous. And so Tamar sends the evidence to Judah of the court and the staff and whatever it is and he looks at the evidence and he pronounces over Tamar tzedak, righteous. She is more righteous than I. Now, I want you to notice he's not saying she's completely righteous. She's saying she's more righteous than I am. In other words, my sins of injustice and not caring for widows when I had the resources to do so. That sin is far more serious than her sins of sexual entrapment and acting like a prostitute. My sin of sleeping with a prostitute is far more serious than her sin of acting like one because she was acting out of desperation. And so the sin of sexual immorality in this story is quite obvious, but I want you to notice the sin of social injustice. This man, Judah, not caring for this poor widow. 
And so what I think is being said to us this morning is that if you have what enables you to be included in society, when you have the ability, when you have the money, when you have the resources, when you have the education, when you have the wherewithal to do good and to help those people who don't have those things and you're not making any effort to help them and to seek them out and to lift up their cause, the Bible says that is an extremely serious Sin. In fact, what we seem to be seeing here in the story is that that sin could be so serious that it actually completely overshadows the sins of other people that we're so quick to judge and that we're so quick to leap on. Isn't that Judah's realization? He wanted her to be burned for her sins but realises she's more righteous than I. And so that's the breakthrough for Tamar. She went after justice and she got it. And so the question for us is, do we share that same kind of passion for justice? Do we recognise the resources and the education and the money and the privilege that we have? And do we see those people who don't have it, it's hard not to in the information age when you've got the internet. And are we using those resources to lift up their cause and to care for the orphans and the widows and to seek after justice in the same way that Tamar does in this story? That's the breakthrough for Tamar. Now let's look at the breakthrough of Judah. I think the The key clue to the breakthrough of Judah in this story is the fact that the place where they did their deed in verse 14 was called Enaim. And Enaim means the opening of the eyes. Which is quite ironic when he gets there and he sees a so-called prostitute, he doesn't realise that it is in fact his daughter-in-law. And so what I think we're being told is that there's something that Judah is very blind to. Judah is blind to himself. Like so many of the Pharisees that Jesus interacted with in his time and he had to deal with, the key to Judah's breakthrough will be in Enaim. It will be through the opening of the eyes, just like Jesus was so often trying to do with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And so I want you to notice, did you see how quickly he jumps at the opportunity to absolutely annihilate his daughter-in-law in in verse 24, read so beautifully by Jan? Bring her out and let her be burned. The Hebrew is much more succinct. It's two words. Bring, burn. Burning was the harshest of penalties reserved for the worst of criminals in that society. And it doesn't take him any time at all to decide what needs to be done with Tamar. But if you think about it, why was he so eager to eradicate his daughter-in-law so quickly? Could it be that he's still blaming her for the death of his two sons? 
Uh, could it be that now he's found an easy out to get rid of uh, his daughter-in-law so that Sheila can go and be free and marry whoever he wants? Could that be why he's so quick and eager to wipe this woman out? You can see what he's been doing the whole time, can't you? <laughs> he's needed to believe bad things about her so that he can keep on believing good things about himself. We know the real reason why that, that his sons died. We're told they were wicked in the sight of the Lord. And why were they wicked in the sight of the Lord? Because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. That's what we've seen in Genesis 34, wiping out the Shechemites. That's what we've seen in Genesis 37, selling his own brother for the bag of silver. He's a wicked man with wicked sons, and yet he needs to believe bad things about her so that he can believe good things about himself. And isn't there something like that inside all of us that needs to justify ourselves, that needs to shift the blame onto other people and to shield ourselves and to hide ourselves from seeing just how bad we really can be? Well, as they're dragging Tamar out to be burned, she says, wait, I've got a message for my father-in-law. And then she uses this critical word in Hebrew. Uh, it's the word hakanah, um, recognize, or, or in your translation, verse 25, uh, take note. Uh, she sends him his signet and his cord and his staff and she asks him, do you hakanah, do you recognise these? But of course, she's not just saying, do you recognise these? She's saying, Judah, do you recognise yourself? Can you see yourself? Can you see who you are? Can you see what you've become? The sexual indulgence and hypocrisy, the vicious judgmentalism towards others, the self-righteousness and the self-deception, how callous you are. Do you recognise yourself? And so right at this moment, Judah is standing on the precipice of the most important decision of his entire life. Will he come clean about who he is or will he keep on covering it up? It's interesting in verse 23, uh, remember they, he sent his mate to go um, pay the kid to the, to the prostitute and they can't find her. Like, There's no prostitute here and so he comes back, can't find her. And in verse 23, he says, well, let her keep the things as her own, otherwise we'll become a laughing stock. Otherwise we'll become a laughing stock. You see, the spiritual breakthrough for Judah comes by becoming a laughing stock. Because that's what he comes. He has to fess up. He comes clean. This is an incredibly public humiliation. The very thing that he was trying to avoid in becoming a public, a, a laughing stock to everyone is exactly what needed to happen for him. An incredibly public humiliation for an incredibly important patriarch of the tribe of Judah. How's he ever going to live this down? 
But you see, this was the only way that he could be brought back from the brink. This is God's grace. This is God's wake-up call. This is Judah's last chance. Uh, Tim Keller talks about the fact that when um, a lost sheep is found, the feeling is not, oh, yippee, hooray, I feel so great. Because what the shepherd has to do when he finds a lost sheep is grab it and throw it down and tie it up and take it home, struggling and kicking the whole way. In other words, when a lost sheep is being found, it doesn't feel like it's being found. When a lost sheep is being loved, it doesn't feel like it's being loved. When a lost sheep is being made safe, it does not feel like it's being made safe. It feels like it's being picked on. It feels like it's being treated harshly. And so often that's exactly what a spiritual awakening can feel like. Isn't that exactly what we see in Judah's spiritual awakening here? One woman, Rosaria, described her coming to Christ as a train wreck at the hand of the supernatural. Her life became a complete train wreck. But it's what God needed to do for her to come to Christ. And that's exactly what we see with Judah. This is a train wreck at the hand of the supernatural. So that a greater and much worse train wreck might be avoided for Judah. And so this word reckoned, recognize, hakanah, is really crucial in the story because we remember when the brothers, they dipped his brothers, that Joseph's um, coat in blood? What did they say to dad? When they brought the coat and they said, do you recognize? Do you recognize his coat? And do you remember when they were in Egypt standing before the prime minister who was going to rescue them? It says they did not recognize they didn't recognize that it was his brother who'd been lifted up and so here is what i think we're seeing in the course of judah's life is that he needs to be able to recognize his sins before he's able to recognize the son before he's able to recognize any of those things about his brother he needs to recognize these things about himself that he needs a brother who is different He needs a brother who is not like him. And so reflecting on the breakthrough for Judah, Bonhoeffer has written a book called Life Together. And in a chapter called Confession and Communion, he says, and I think it's helpful for us, he or she who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, prayer and fellowship, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship doesn't come because they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, but they do not have fellowship as the undevout, the sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. But then Bonhoeffer gives us the way through to spiritual breakthrough. 
He says, in the confession of concrete sins, the old woman or man dies a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother and sister. That's what we see with Judah. That's the spiritual breakthrough coming through, coming clean with confession. And surely it's part of what Jesus is talking about when he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. So that's the breakthrough of Judah. And then briefly to finish with, let's look at the breakthrough of blessing, the promised Perez. Uh, Remember the promises that God has made so far in the story. He has promised Eve that one day she would have a son who would crush the head of the snake. And that's why we've got to keep on having kids because one of these sons is going to be the snake crusher. That's what we see in the Bible. And, and he has promised Abraham that he would have descendants more numerous than the stars and that one of his sons will be the way in which the whole world is blessed. And so as we read the Bible, we're supposed to be asking, is this the son of the promise? Is this the son of the promise? And that's why we see trouble having kids because there's a spiritual battle preventing this son of the promise who's going to save the world and crush the snake being born. But do you notice... That Tamar does have kids. She has twins in the last section. And, and, and one of them is called Perez. Do you know what Perez means? It, it means breakthrough. This is the breakthrough. In other words, what Tamar has done in this story is that she has ensured that the line of Eve and the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has been preserved so that the son of the promise of this snake crusher will one day be born, the saviour of the world. And it's interesting, in Matthew chapter 1, before we get to the Christmas story, do you know how the Gospel starts, the New Testament starts? It starts with the genealogy of Jesus. It starts with his lineage. And so, do you know who the first woman of the New Testament is in the genealogy? Matthew chapter 1. The first woman of the New Testament is Tamar. This woman who was used and abused. This woman who was ashamed and shunned. This woman who was... Young girl, teenage girl who was treated like trash and covered in shame, damaged goods. By the end of the story, she is totally vindicated and she is exalted and exonerated through the son of the promise. How amazing that the Lord Jesus, the king of kings, would see fit to be born by a prostitute. As well as by a promiscuous promiscuous patriarch. I mean, surely, if you were writing your genealogy and your resume, you would try and keep that kind of thing under wraps, right? And yet there she is. You see, genealogies were common in the first century, but one thing that was totally unique was to include a woman in your genealogy, let alone a prostitute. And yet Tamar's the first woman of the New Testament. And of course... The Lord Jesus spent a lot of time with people like Judah, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And he was trying to open their eyes and trying to help them recognize their sins so that they would be able to recognize the son. But I think he had a lot more fun with hanging out with people like Tamar, the sinners and the prostitutes. Certainly they had a lot more fun 
hanging out with him. And he gladly told them about the goodness and the grace and the kindness of God and his love for them and how that would flow through to them through this promised son who was so different to his brothers. And so let's close this morning by praising God for the son of the promise who is different. Do you realise that the Lord Jesus did exactly the opposite to what Judah did with Tamar? What did Judah do? Judah blamed Tamar for all of his sin so that she would be declared guilty and he would be declared innocent. But the Lord Jesus, the son of the promise, took upon all of our sin and took upon himself all of our shame so that he would be declared guilty and we would be declared innocent. And not only declared innocent, but Isaiah 61 says to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And so it is through the son of the promise that the blessing of God breaks through to people like Tamar who would be given so high an honour as to be listed in the genealogy of Jesus, the King of Kings, this woman who is so hated and despised. And it's through the son of the promise that the blessing breaks through to people like Judah, given so high an honour as to have the son of the promise, the Lord Jesus Christ, named after him in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, where it says, Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Judah? Lord, there were 12 brothers. And you picked Judah? I mean, surely you might have picked Joseph. But no, Jesus is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This promiscuous patriarch. Surely, this passage is telling us that the blessings of God break through to us by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, not by works, so that no one can boast, but everyone can rejoice. Because if there's hope for Judah, self-righteous, judgmental, violent. And if there's hope for Tamar, used and abused, ashamed and discarded, then you know what that means, right? It means there's hope for us. Through the son of the promise, who is different. Let's pray. Father, we pray for spiritual breakthrough this morning. Lord, for those of us like Tamar who are still carrying our guilt and our shame and what has been done to us or what we've done, Lord, would you show us how the son who is different carried all of that to the cross and paid for it once and, once and for all? Would you reveal that to us? Father, would you let streams of living water flow, the cleansing of the Holy Spirit through our souls, washing us so that we too can see how we've been lifted up through the Son who was brought down in our place. 
Father, for those of us who are blind and need to have our eyes opened to recognise our sins. Would you open up our eyes? Lord, would you orchestrate circumstances, even as Tamar did for Judah, Lord? It was a severe mercy. Would you orchestrate circumstances for us so that we would be able to recognise our sins, so that we could see the beauty and the glory and be able to recognise the Son? And so we thank you for the Son who is different, who took upon our shame and gave us his glory. We worship you this morning. Amen.